Welcome to the world of the Western esoteric tradition. and listeners. Thos Hermes podcast is finally back today on November 26, 2017 to start our season two of interesting and hopefully exciting 12 new editions of our podcast about the Western esoteric tradition, which means that esoteric, occult and paranormal subjects are our thing. As always, our show is centered around an interview with an interesting personality from that realm, surrounded by news, reviews and music. My name is Rudolf, I am your host, and I'm talking to you from the outskirts of the lovely capital of Austria, Vienna. As always, I would like to invite you to also visit our website www.thoughthermes.com that is T-H-O-T-H-E-R-M-E-S dot com There you can find the show notes to this edition but also all the articles from the news and reviews section all the previous episodes of our season 1 and the special editions You can listen to Thoth Hermes podcast either directly from the website, but also on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Blueberry, Spreaker, Android, and many other podcast services who more and more choose to present our offer on their sites. This week's featured guest on Thoth Hermes is UK-born and US-living author lecturer, Freemason, visual artist and deep thinker, Angel Millar. I'm sure you are going to enjoy this interview. Angel has also chosen the music that we are going to play during this show. And now, some feedback. Thanks to everyone who has given me feedback over the last few weeks. This is not only appreciated, but also really necessary for me in order to develop Thoth Hermes podcast further and in an interesting way. Season 1 has until now had over 16,000 listeners and for a podcast which only started in mid-April, I think this is not so bad. Please carry on listening and coming back to me. 
you can either email me on info at thoughthermes.com, go on the website and use the contact form or voicemail there, or of course use Twitter and Facebook where I think it is easy to find Thoth Hermes podcast as well. Thanks a lot. I'm also very happy about your reactions to our special Sawin Halloween edition. This was a first test of a different format, which I will try to present on the main season holidays, and I'm encouraged by your interest and feedback. So, I think you can expect another special edition for winter solstice just before Christmas, and I hope you will like it just as much or even better than the last one. But in order to make this special edition real special again, I do need your support and your contribution. So please, send me your ideas and texts or recordings of texts and music so they can be part of our special winter solstice edition. Well, season two should have started already two weeks earlier as I had promised. Those of you who follow me on Facebook know that my computer work course, on which I do all the interviews, writing, editing, etc., gave up after almost six years of service. I had to order a new one and, surprise, surprise, when the new one arrived, it turned out that it was not functioning properly. So lengthy discussions with Apple and then luckily they decide to send me another new one. But that of course took another five days or so to arrive. Through all those intermediate operations, my backup got damaged and I had to restore things partly manually. Luckily all the crucial data is not on a local backup, but somewhere in the cloud. But all of this took lots of time. And as you can imagine, I'm using my computer also for my day job, which caused delay on what I have to do there too. The good lesson was that sometimes you just have to give in to what happens to you and deal with it. I did a lot more reading those days without a computer, but the bad side for you, dear listeners, was of course that the start of our new season here was delayed. But now I'm not longer going to rant about this, here we are again. Two small consequences of the delay I need to report though. In fact, I wanted to review the Thoth Hermes website for the start of the new season as well, and I wanted to start special membership editions on each new moon, starting this November. Well, this will have to wait that I can do the work over Christmas. So please expect new beauty on the website sometime very early January and the first membership edition will be for the first new moon of the coming year 2018 on January 17 to be precise. The other thing I adapted in order to bring this episode to you finally is that I scrapped today's news and review section. It will be back on our next episode, number two of course, which hopefully will not take two full weeks to produce 
and bring us back in a bit a more regular schedule. Also, the interview with Angel Millar today was so interesting that it got a bit longer than usual, so you will have a nice episode number one of this season, I hope. Without further ado, let's then start. Here comes the interview. Angel Millar has been on my wish list of guests for this podcast for some time. I first came across him when I stumbled over his website, Phalanx, a year and a half ago, and I was very interested and fascinated by his views and also by his courage to address issues and questions which are sometimes very difficult to tackle. Later on, I also discovered that he was a very interesting author, namely with books about Freemasonry. His third book, The Compass and the Crescent, describing the rarely discussed and often unknown relationship between Freemasonry and Islam, has been a huge success and has been issued in a second, revised and slightly expanded edition a few weeks ago. So, this was the moment Angel and I finally got together for this interview. In the first part, we will talk about the man himself, about Freemasonry and his three books. I should also mention here that it was Angel who designed the beautiful backgrounds and logos for the Thought Hermes website earlier this year. Thanks again for that, Angel. As always, the interview will be split in two parts, and I will play some music in between. And as I mentioned before, today's interview is a bit longer than usual, a bit over 80 minutes altogether, so the break will come after approximately 40 minutes. Enjoy my talk with Angel Millar. Welcome to Thoth Hermes podcast, Angel Millar. It is a great pleasure to have you finally here as a guest on this podcast. People who go on my website regularly should already know you because the beautiful artwork that they find there is from you. Thank you again for helping me with that. And also your other artwork can be seen on the arts page. So Angel, welcome. I'm glad that you're finally with us here tonight. Well, thanks very much. It's, uh, it's really nice to be speaking to you at last. Thank you. Angel, maybe we should start by letting people know a bit about your personal background, if you want. So you live in New York today, I know that, but where do you come from? As a European, your little accent sounds a bit more familiar to me than the New York accent. So why is that? Yeah, so so originally, uh, I, w I was born in, and I grew up in England, actually, in the southeast of London. And then I came, he I came to New York in, when I was in my early 20s. That's where I've lived, although I did live in Canada for a few years as well. Right, so you traveled to the English-speaking world a lot. A little bit, yeah. <laughs> and so the Western esoteric tradition, as I know, um, is something that seems to be very close to your heart and mind. Um, you have a wonderful website, which is called Phalanx, but we'll talk about that a bit later. But 
beyond that, beyond being a Freemason as well, you're also an artist, a visual artist. How did that happen? How was your training? How did that all come together? Right. Well, most people know me, and I, th I think we'll discuss this, but most people know me actually as an author because yes. I've written three books on the, mm -hmm. so far on the subject of Freemasonry and esotericism. But yes, yeah, so, so I also am an artist. And um, and I should say, and I think it will come up again, that you know, I personally believe that we need to develop uh, different sides of ourselves in accordance with uh, what might be called a, a classical education, uh, where... Uh, Usually, men developed, um, say, the martial arts, but also uh, developed themselves through, through uh, poetry or calligraphy and different aspects. So, so my main, my main focus is actually writing, but I do uh, I do do uh, some some painting and some art and some uh, some design as well. Uh, I actually studied uh, in London at a couple of different art colleges. Originally, I intended to become a fine artist, but uh, I don't. I don't have that much time for art these days, but I do what I can. So writing nowadays takes up most of your time? And most of my time. Uh, and um, I do do some uh, slightly more graphic uh, works pertaining to esotericism. And I, th I think I'm going to be developing that over the next couple of years. But uh, a painting takes a long, long, long yeah. time. So it may not be feasible at this point in my life. Mm -hmm. But we'll see. Yeah. And the Western esoteric tradition, how did that come into your life? Was this at a very early stage or did you find it later on or how did that happen? Yeah, fairly early. But um, yeah, so my first let's say, introduction to Western esotericism was uh, when I was 15, I, I picked up a book on uh, meditation. I don't quite remember what book it was or what ex what tradition exactly, but it was talking about the four elements and astral projection and this kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I, I tried some things out and didn't really understand it at all. Um, but then when I was 17, I came across a, a, an esoteric uh, bookstore uh, only a few miles from where I lived. And um, it was a little bit of a, a scene. And, you know, I ended up, sort of being introduced to a lot of different um, uh, esoteric uh, traditions and religious and spiritual traditions as well. And it, it sort of fired my imagination and, and my enthusiasm. So I was, you know, reading all the time and, and doing artwork actually inspired by those themes. So, th so that was my introduction, really. And I was reading pretty widely when I was 17, 18 from... Uh, from everything from Aleister Crowley to uh, Mercia Iliade, so and some of you know some of it was uh, more serious than than other books, but uh... it's interesting. I think many of us, if I may say, seem to have gone a bit along a similar path at least, and started by finding out about a number of different traditions, and then yeah, somehow ending up maybe more or less concentrating on something more special or something more close to each each one's mind was that your case as well yeah well i still i mean i guess i would say i'm involved i'm not really in western esotericism actually unless you count freemasonry as western esotericism but uh you know i, I tend to study uh, freemasonry a lot but also martial arts as uh, kung fu, chinese kung fu mm -hmm. and um, other than that my practice is really based more on uh 
something close to Kundalini or Taoist uh, internal alchemy or something like that. Right. Uh, yeah. So that would be the main things for me. So in a way, I'm slightly, I'm probably more orientated towards uh, Eastern tradition, if mm -hmm. you can put it that way, uh, with the exception of Freemasonry. We'll come back to Freemasonry in a minute, but you were just mentioning a martial art, and it's important as a link to the esoteric practice, the Eastern esoteric practice. Yeah, and actually, uh, the school that I practice Kung Fu with, it does emphasize uh, fighting, and we don't wear pads or anything. So, it, so you know, occasionally injuries do happen, and uh, you know, not all schools uh, uh, emphasize uh, fighting at all. And we, we do do other things, such as conditioning our body, trying to harden it. But we also do some meditation and uh, breathing exercises and uh, qigong as well. So it it's uh, pretty well rounded, I would say. Well, let's go back to Freemasonry then. You were talking about the three books that you have written, so let's now talk about Angel Millar, the author. The two first books, if I'm right, are about Freemasonry in general, are one could call them historical views on Freemasonry, and especially, I think this was your second book called Freemasonry, Foundation of the Western Esoteric Tradition, right? Yeah, that's yeah. right. So the, mm. the first one was published in 2005 with uh, Thunder Bay Press and Greenwich Editions, and uh, that is... A, a really a, an overview of uh, the history of Freemasonry. Of course, it doesn't uh, include every single element in there, but it, it gives a good, fairly in-depth uh, history of the uh, tradition, I think. And uh, my second book, as you mentioned, focused on uh, Freemasonry and its relationship to Western esotericism and the occult. So its influence on, say, uh, the Ordo Templi Orientis and uh, Wicca. Uh, and also uh, Freemasonry's uh, absorbing of uh, elements of Hermeticism and Rosicrucianism and so on. Mm. So, yeah. so that, that was the main focus of that book. Actually, uh, the second one I have it here in front of me, and I was very lucky to grab one of the very last copies, if I'm uh. right, to be available <laughs> yeah. a, a few months ago only. Um, and I think the other book, the first from 2003, you said, is out of print too, is that correct? Yeah, they're both pretty rare, yeah. and uh, the second one is very rare at this yeah. point. Although there is a chance that it will be re-released, re maybe uh, in an updated version, or an expanded version, right. uh, at some point. Well, I'm glad to hear that, because I really like it very much. Um, the first, I wasn't lucky enough to, to grab a copy, but this about the foundation of the Western esoteric tradition. I do really enjoy reading it, and it would be great if it came back onto the market for our listeners to get a copy. I would like to jump on the subtitle of that because yeah. you just also said, well, Western esoteric tradition, you are a Freemason. And I cite you now what you just said, if one can call that Western esoteric tradition. <laughs> <laughs> and here you speak about it being the foundation. So how would you position Freemasonry in general within or without the Western esoteric tradition? Well, 
if we can be blunt. So the, the, the term Western esoteric tradition has become a kind of euphemism for the occult, right? Mm -hmm. Yes. I mean, that's what, what people are talking about. Uh, they, they just don't want to say it. But um, so I would say that <laughs> the Freemasonry is not a cult because I think that uh, occultism, uh, if I understand it correctly, is largely about, uh, let's say, the manipulation of forces or gaining uh, something via the supernatural world in some sense mm -hmm. um, and trying to change things, especially in the environment, perhaps. Yes. Which is not to say that there's not a sort of mystical side to, uh, to occultism, but I think that that's more where the occult is focused. Yes. Or at least, and maybe other other aspects as well, such as uh, entering some kind of altered state of consciousness to gain knowledge of uh, of the supernatural or knowledge of of events that that have passed or maybe the future or something like that. Whereas I don't think that's what Freemasonry is about at all, and I, I think you would be hard pushed to make that claim actually. But um, Freemasonry certainly has a, has influenced uh, uh, Western esotericism or or occultism. Uh, Hermeticism and Rosicrucianism certainly have influenced uh, some aspects of Freemasonry. Mm -hmm. um, so to sort of untangle that, uh, Freemasonry, uh, uh, as I'm sure many of your listeners will know, um, despite what what many people may claim, uh, Freemasonry emerged out of the uh, Stonemasons Guild in Great Britain. Mm -hmm. Uh, at the beginning, more or less, of the 18th century. And the Stonemasons Guild itself is interesting because it, it definitely has a, a history of several hundred years, going back to roughly around 1400 AD, having a certain mythology uh, pertaining to stonemasonry, which in itself is, um, is quite bizarre. It mentions Hermes, two pillars, uh, and various other things which are not i don't think they're a, they're a cult but it's a, it's a mythology mm. of its time that it basically explains how stone masonry came to the west and uh, what it's um in a way what its metaphysical foundation might be although they probably wouldn't have used a word like that but um so freemason was based on something not just on sort of a, a guild uh, meeting. The stonemasons prior to the emergence of Freemasonry also had some kind of uh, initiation ritual, though it was certainly a lot simpler than, uh, than that of uh, the Freemasons. But um, the Freemasons, as they developed, distinct from uh, the Stonemasons Guild, uh, they, they elaborated the ritual and created, as you know, the, uh, the three foundational degrees, as we know it, uh, mm -hmm. of, of uh, craft Freemasonry. And then as it spread to Europe, the Europeans, especially the French and Germans, uh, began to reinterpret Freemasonry and to say that, no, it wasn't from England and it wasn't from the Stonemasons Guild, that it was, in fact, uh, transported uh, from uh, from the east by you know the crusader knights or that it came from uh, the alchemists or, hem or from hermeticism 
well, from Rosicrucians and later on from ancient Egypt, and then later on in the 19th century, you, you start getting uh, more and more theories, and, and almost everything, I think, has been ascribed uh, to the origins of uh, Freemasonry less and less convincingly. And even, even today, or more recently, um, you know, Sufism is sometimes now seen as the origin of Freemasonry. And, it, and the reason for that is we're more interested in Sufism today than we were in it, in Sufism 50 years ago or 100 years yeah. ago. So in a way, Freemasonry, let's say from the early 1800s all the way through to today, it's, a, it's kind of absorbed the, uh, let's say, uh, maybe not a very dignified word, but an appropriate one, has absorbed the uh, fashions within the world of alternative or underground spirituality. And um, in a certain sense, has become a kind of record of them. So, in the in, in the quote unquote higher degrees of Freemasonry, those that come after the third degree or Master Mason degree, um, you can you can detect other influences. So, you know, the Scot in the Scottish Rite, you have the 18th degree of the Rose Choir, yeah. which is you know transparently influenced by uh, uh, Rosicrucianism symbolism and you know alchemical symbolism, uh, as well as uh, Roman uh, Catholic uh, liturgy as well, but, and then there are you know there have been other rites, uh, many of them not recognised as legitimate by uh, what what we might call, what we call regular Freemasons. Um, so you know such as uh, Memphis and Mizraim and, and, and numerous other rites out there yeah. uh, that have incorporated all kinds of other material. Um, one of the rites of Memphis and Mizraim, because there have been several versions, uh, but one of them you know even drew on um, Norse mythology and uh, at the end of, uh, this is in a, a ritual called uh, the Night of Scandinavia and at the end of that initiation the uh, the initiate is given a cipher which is uh, one of the runic alphabets mm -hmm. so it's it's uh, it became this very eclectic thing and most of these rites as i say were not recognized by regular freemasonry though some of some of them are and are, are practiced by regular freemasons such as the scottish rite and the uh, quote-unquote york rite which is uh, the royal arch mm -hmm. and uh, the order of the temple the uh, so-called knights templar degree uh, which doesn't go back to the knights templar it's uh, a later innovation. But, uh, so Freemasonry drew in a lot of different influences. For example, the you know the alchemical and the hermetic. But it doesn't it doesn't say you should now uh, practice alchemy, uh, whether that alchemy is laboratory alchemy or whether it's internal alchemy of generating uh, or circulating or or trying to um, cultivate. Uh, subtle energy in the body. It doesn't say that. It doesn't provide any instructions for doing that. Freemasonry, in a way, is a kind of curious thing by itself. <laughs> um, it's definitely closer to other guilds, uh, other guilds uh, such as the Companions of uh, France, which are, are long defunct. But um, it, it retains um, a kind of uh, memory of uh, certain esoteric uh, traditions and of, uh, and of, tr of the, the traditions of the stonemasons as well, which is, I think, something completely unique. Mm -hmm. And it's unique because it, it developed over hundreds of years as an enclosed 
uh, guild. Uh, whereas I don't think you can say that about uh, anything else in Western esotericism, because even alchemy, it wasn't it wasn't that there was one guild where it all developed over a period of hundreds of years. You know, it was different uh, different people doing different things all over all over Europe and, mm-hmm. and further than Europe. Mm-hmm. So, so I would distinguish it from uh, Western esotericism or occultism in that regard. But nevertheless, um, you know, most, most, uh, at least early to mid, uh, mid 20th century occultists of any of any note, but in even 19th century occultists of any note, uh, virtually all of them were, were Freemasons and uh, and took the symbolism and uh, and more, perhaps more importantly, in many cases, they took uh, the uh, ritual structure and and built things around it and infused it with um, with their own sort of teachings uh, in a way or, or teachings that they got from elsewhere and um, you know I think that's one of the, the things that people don't quite grasp about Freemasonry that you you can't really take the let's say the Catholic mass and um, put all kinds of things in it but you can take because you know that might be considered blasphemy and a bit dubious but you can certainly take the masonic ritual which is a kind of format right and put and put other things in it in the same way that books on completely uh, different subjects or with completely opposing views basically use the same format of let's say uh you know table of contents chapters and an index right well in a, in a certain sense once you strip down the masonic ritual that's what you get you get a you get a format or a skeleton that you can then that you can sort of build up again in your own image yeah. and that's what so many people did it might then be called blasphemous by the united grand lodge of england though but <laughs> <laughs> yeah maybe not that word but they would certainly not be. yeah not that word you're quite right <laughs> no but I hear you. I mean, I find it very interesting when you say that uh, Western esoteric tradition is a euphemism for occultism. Uh, never heard that, but I, I'm sure you're right when I think it over. I think it perfectly fits um, what you're saying. What I find interesting also, in my personal opinion, Freemasonry until today, but especially from the 19th century onward, has served like as an entry door into the occult or into the Western esoteric tradition, like a filter somehow, because it's maybe there where you can meet um, like-minded men who speak about things you might not dare speak out into the (laughs) profane world. And through that, well, the Golden Dawn, the initial old Golden Dawn came out of Freemasonry more recently, Groups like Fraternita Saturni came out of Freemasonry, etc., etc., etc. So, is it that what you mean when you say that it's also a foundation for occultism? Uh, yeah, right. So, so the you know the founding members of the the Golden Dawn were Freemasons, so as as were the founding members of the OTO as well. Yes. And with, with the OTO, it's even more explicit because in their founding charter, they actually give a list of which uh, rights that they say that that they are founded upon. And uh, I, th- I think they're all Masonic, if, I, if memory mm-hmm. serves me correctly. And most of them would be considered irregular by the Grand Lodges today. But nevertheless, um, irregular or not, uh, they are claiming to be based on these old, uh, old Masonic rites, mm-hmm. and and then they have you know slightly changed them to suit their own purposes. Yeah. 
Well, I would like now to start talking about your third book, which is called The Crescent and the Compass. And its in first edition has been published in 2015. And just now, uh, a few weeks ago, a second expanded edition has been released. And that's also a bit the occasion of our talk today. The Crescent and the Compass touches a subject which I have never seen touched by any other book so far. It's a fascinating subject. The subtitle is called Islam, Freemasonry, Esotericism and Revolution in the Modern Age. A vast subject. You just talked about Sufism being seen more and more as the origin of Freemasonry. That's part of it, but really only part of it. It's kind of a unique and also nowadays difficult subject, isn't it, Angel? Uh, yes. I mean, I was surprised that um, no one, at least as far as I know in the English-speaking world, had, has ever really explored the, the, the connections between Freemasonry and uh, Islam over the last couple of hundred years, uh, to, at least to the extent uh, of uh, putting a book together on, on it. Although I think there's one on the Ottoman Empire uh, and Freemasonry coming out at some point, but I don't believe it's actually available yet. But uh, yeah, so I was surprised about that, and um, you know, I, was, I wanted to kind of rush it out to to make sure that I wasn't pipped to the post. But uh, since then, I've actually had you know a couple of years to uh, think about it a little more, and actually um, to get some uh, feedback and different perspectives on it as well. And uh, actually, one of the things that I was surprised about was that uh, uh, I think. It probably got the best reaction, um, at least initially, among Black Muslims. That were, and uh, yeah, and they, and they, um, you know, a few, uh, a few people connected to that contacted me and gave me their thoughts on it. And a quite different uh, perspective uh, over the last couple of years. Though the book hasn't changed that much. I mean, it's it's expanded in in that I included a little more on Crowley and it included some information about an early Masonic catechism, which um, which uh, quotes the Shahada in it, which is the Islamic profession of faith. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, but I actually uh, took out some things that I thought were actually un, a little unnecessary and distracting from the narrative as well. So it probably balances out more or less. But I think that this is a, overall a, a tighter and more interesting interesting and version and has a some more interesting details in that right so i only possess for the moment the first edition and if the second one is going to be yeah. tighter and even more interesting okay <laughs> yeah but yeah it is but in, in regard to your, the second part of your comment yes it is a controversial subject to yes. to, uh, to cover and it's not an easy one to cover and, I'm sure. and i think you, you have to do it with um with some subtlety and um uh with some i don't want to say caution but uh uh, you have to be very aware of what you're saying and, and doing. Some re- respect, also probably. That's the. That's the <laughs> you do, and uh, obviously there are people who would write about it not with respect. But to be completely blunt with you, I, I don't think that was an issue for me. In that, uh, you know, it took 
quite a few years to research and write. I mean, quite a few, to be honest. Mm -hmm. And I don't, I don't want to spend th three, four, five years uh, reading about a subject that I dis <laughs> I dislike. <laughs> I think we're going mad. So, so I, whenever I write about anyone, no matter how reprehensible people may feel that uh, some of the individuals uh, to be, mm -hmm. um, you know, I want to find what's interesting and and um, and noble about them, uh, even if I have reservations about them or ultimately don't think what they did was good i still want to find what is interesting and noble and i think that, that that's the only way you can actually write a book i think it would be a, a absolutely horrible experience and a horrible read to do it any other way yeah, yeah. certainly so, so now you're kind of taking half of my next question but uh, okay. bring, no no but you bring me there properly uh, i was going to ask you well it is a difficult subject what did you make start working on it? Nobody has so far. Why did you, how did you come across the subject? And maybe for those listeners who have not yet read that book, um, maybe you could just give them a very quick overview to a teaser, so to speak, and then tell us why did you come across that subject? Yeah. Well, before I started researching it, there were a few different things that I was aware of, uh, among which uh, were uh, I was aware of um, contemporary uh, anti-Freemasonry anti and anti-Masonic propaganda in what what is generally termed Islamism. We can be a bit uh, sort of a little more accurate about that later if we get into that subject. But So I was aware of that sort of very negative aspect, but I was also, of course, aware of things such as uh, the Shriners, which is generally seen as a kind of uh, fun-loving party-going um, fraternity that is uh, open only to uh, to Freemasons and um, for those uh, for those who don't know it's essentially an American phenomenon and it's mm. it's well known for um, you know their street parades and stuff like that especially for for a few decades ago um, but it is also influenced by some uh, Islamic mythology as well so I was I was aware of that um, I was aware of um, uh, the rival uh, uh, group uh, called the the Grotto or the Mystic Order of the Veiled Prophets of the Enchanted Realm, uh, which is another organization which is only open to Freemasons, and is influenced by, uh, uh, loosely speaking, is influenced by uh, Persian um, Islamic mm. uh, mythology as well. And then, of course, you have people like uh, Rene Gaynon, uh, who you may be aware of. Uh, the, the founder of traditionalism, mm. uh, he, he converted to, or quote-unquote, moved into Sufism uh, late, late in life and moved and spent his uh, last years in Cairo. But when he was younger, he was involved with... Um, uh, with theosophy and he was also involved with a uh, uh, fringe masonry as well so i was aware of all of these uh, connections and uh, uh, all of these connections between uh, islam and uh, freemasonry uh, uh, roughly speaking and uh, so I, it seemed like there was something there and i don't quite know how i went about um, researching it, but I suppose as I did, I came across more and more things. Um, for example, uh, you know, I came across uh, Quilliam's name, mm -hmm. 
Henry William Quilliam, who was uh, later Sheikh Abdul Quilliam. And I had a hunch that he would be a Freemason. Uh, he, was, uh, he was one of the first converts to Islam in Britain. This is in the late 19th century, which is pretty early. And um, it just struck me that the time was right for someone like that to be a Freemason because anyone that was involved in um, unusual spirituality, which that would have been considered uh, as, uh, was nearly always either a Freemason or, or connected to Freemasons. And so, you know, I found I found out more about him. Uh, he, he was mentioned in a lot of uh, obscure Masonic journals that I managed to come across. There was quite some exploration to be done. Uh, I should say that, yeah, not only was he a convert to Islam and very active, uh, promoting Islam in the in the British Isles and very politically active in favor of uh, Muslims in the British Empire, but uh, somewhat strangely, he was also um, very involved with not only Freemasonry but with uh, the the Swedenborgian rite of Freemasonry again, which is another fairly fringy. A right that I don't believe is being worked by anyone anymore, or maybe somewhere or other, but uh, not as, as far as I know, which is based on the teachings of Emanuel Swedenborg, the, the Swedish mystic. And he was also involved in the Sat Bai, which is sometimes described as a, a tantric Hindu um, uh, society, but it, again, it seems to have been influenced by uh, Freemasonry, and I'm, I'm sure there's no no sexual element. And uh, he even formed his own uh, his own right, which was based on uh, Freemasonry, uh, called the Ancient Order of Zuzimites. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and that order as well is written about in various obscure Masonic journals for, from the period. As far as I know, I'm the only person to have written about uh, that at any length uh, that's not been a member of the right and uh, since, since it was going. Uh, the only other person I, I believe that's really written about it was uh, was Quilliam, in fact, and uh, he probably wrote all of the rituals as well. So, I mean, something like that is hard to come across, but it's also, I mean, no one has written about that really, yeah. so far as I know. So I am also about sure because I have also researched in it after I found your book, and I haven't found any yeah. book in any of the four languages that I read, uh, yeah. <laughs> which would... Yeah. Only come close to the in-depth study that you do here. That's really yeah. fascinating. Yeah, and it's, it's sorry, and it's curious because there is actually a, a biography of Quilliam out now, and uh, it does mention the order, the ancient order of the Zimites and Freemasonry, but it's literally in just about two sentences. So it's not not a, a big part of it at all. I mean, there's really no information at all in it. So yeah, you mentioned René Guénon. And uh, when he stepped into Sufism, that's the way you put it. And before that, he, yes, one can say he is the founder of what is called nowadays traditionalism. Um, do you think that traditionalism, both in the Masonic and in the more general philosophic way, and the link of Masonry to Islam have some common issues? Okay, so the connection between Freemasonry and Islam and uh, traditionalism. Mm -hmm. Does the link yeah. between Islam and Masonry work through traditionalism or are those oh. completely separate phenomena? Yeah, so it's completely separate. So right. traditionalism, uh, and here I'm talking about traditionalism with a capital T, yes. was essentially founded by uh, René Gaynon. And it's, um, it, in a way, it's a kind of 
esoteric uh, doctrine about uh, the religions and a man's uh, relationship to the sacred. So uh, again, on uh, postulates for for example that that there was once a primordial tradition that was revealed by God, and that uh, this tradition essentially uh, became expressed uh, across the world uh, in in the major religions such as uh, so Christianity, uh, Judaism, Islam, and uh, Buddhism, and Hinduism, uh, maybe one or two others. So. Um, Another another fairly standard um, belief of traditionalists is that there's a, a, a kind of hierarchy of, uh, of esoteric knowledge. So uh, things can be re revealed in stages and have different levels of meaning, uh, which is fairly fairly standard to any esoteric tradition. But um, but because uh, Gainon says that the uh, major world religions are the recipients of this primordial tradition, although it's expressed differently in each one. Um, it means that unlike the occultists who might, let's say, draw together from different traditions and create his own religion, uh, Gainon would say that that was absolutely terrible. Uh, and that what you have to do is uh, you have to essentially uh, adopt the practices uh, of one of the religions, one of the major religions. And uh, but, but you would understand it from a traditionalist perspective. So you could go through all of the uh, ceremonies of, of Christianity and praying, all the, all, and the same with uh, Islam as well. But you, but you, unlike the other believers, would understand that, okay, but this is uh, actually a manifestation of the primordial tradition. So you have a slightly different take on it, even though you're essentially going through the motions. Mm -hmm. And um, and, and on also believed that the uh, world uh, was, was essentially in a state of decline, spiritually speaking. So it's, it's the opposite idea of progressivism. So, you know, the progressivism, uh, the political doctrine essentially says that everything is getting better all of the time and we're progressing into the future. Yeah. And, uh, and we're, we're the man essentially can change things to make things better, and that that's what we need to do all the time. Whereas Gainon would say that's completely false, mm -hmm. and that things are actually getting more and more materialistic, and we're moving further and further into the quote unquote Kali Yuga or the Dark Age, uh, from a spiritual sp perspective. And um, yeah, so that that's essentially what traditionalism is. So I mean, he he is you know he is one thread that would connect in a story sense uh, Freemasonry and traditionalism because he begins with you know theosophy and fringe masonry and, and ends up uh, maybe not converting per se but moving into Islam in, in his older years so you know he's a historical thread but that and, and Quilliam is another historical thread but although he's not a traditionalist but um, but yeah otherwise uh, the the connections between Islam or at least radical Muslim thinkers and and, and Freemasonry and Freemasonry Masons uh, is outside of traditionalism. The other question I had about that, it seems to me that when I read your book and the stories linked to it, most of those related facts find their, well, I mean, not their origin, but uh, emerge in the late 19th, early 20th centuries. Do you think this has to do that at that time? The West, so to speak, had started a new and different relation with those 
countries where Islam was strong and present? Or is there any other reason? Or do I just perceive it wrongly? Yeah, I don't know that it was to do with the relationship between the nations, uh, because you have the abolishment of the caliphate and the secularization of Turkey in the 1920s. But I think um, it begins really in the in the latter half of the 19th century. Yes, and I yeah. And I, yeah, and I think actually it's more to do with uh, the fact that With Freemasonry, for example, it sort of exhausted itself by that point on pretty much every other tradition it can find. So it starts to look outward. So it becomes interested in, there's some interest in the Druze religion. You know, it's very hard even today to get anything on, on the Druze tradition that's of any value. Yeah. It must have been even worse back then. But, um, you know, but but they were able to get some things from Islam. You know, you could you could read the Quran, you could learn a little bit about the religion. And I think it was just coming more and more into the consciousness of, uh, of um, Western thinkers uh, at that time. And, um, you know, don't forget, uh, only a couple of hundred years before, we've been fighting for uh, several centuries uh, some pretty uh, bloody battles between Europe and, and the yeah. Islamic world. My, my city of Vienna is very famous right. for that, yes. Right, because there was the siege of Vienna, right? Yeah. So, uh, any earlier on, I think there would have been too much hostility to it. And even in the founding, or at least maybe not the founding text, but the first uh, official or semi-official book on Freemasonry, which was written by uh, um, Minister uh, James Anderson, you know, does not speak well of of, um, of Islam, which he equates with uh, yeah. um, spreading th uh, through fire and sword. You yeah. know, so yeah. and you know that was very much of the time, and and I don't think you would have uh, got a lot of favorable reviews of Christianity in in the Islamic world at that time either. So, but uh, you know, so it wasn't as if they were going to be uh, influenced by Islam or uh, you know at, th at that time. But later on, as uh, as it uh, with no conflict there, um, no sort of hot wars there, um, these uh, traditions could kind of seep into the Western consciousness a, a little bit more, and um, and then it allowed for it to be taken up into different Masonic or semi or fringe Masonic rites and, and organizations and then uh, spread into uh, alternative spirituality um, more broadly, I would yes. say. That reminds me of a story you certainly know. The, it's the legend of the temple. Of course, in Masonry, we have a version of that, but I mean the one that was reported to the West by Gérard de Nerval, the French writer. And in fact, it tells the story uh, which we know from uh, Masonry, but in a much more extended way. And okay. it is just, um, and it's very interesting because it becomes much more occult also, the story, than the one that is used in Masonry normally. And also the way like, Nerval picks up, well, he says he picked up that story first in Istanbul and then in Lebanon in those cafes where the storytellers were hanging out mm -hmm. and were telling that story. And that reminded me very much of what you write in that book, how this Islamic oriental tradition and the Western traditions started mixing up and, and how the West created new myths Out of them. Yeah, yeah. Those are 
very emotional subjects, I think. And uh, I am very impressed by your, I mean that very positively, your very sober treatment of those emotional subjects. Um, so how do you achieve this? What's, what's your approach that you can really look from the outside in a very sober way on those things? It's definitely an emotional uh, subject, as we know, and one that causes much hysteria in the world today, uh, especially by people that have never read a single uh, passage of the Quran who feel that you know they can scream and rant either for or against Islam, um, which is a, in itself a very strange phenomenon. But I think uh, I think the approach to anything that you're going to spend time researching or claim to be involved with, I mean, I think you have to approach it that you're trying to get to the truth, and <clears throat> and that's that's hard because um, the truth isn't always the sugar-coated version that we're given, and it's maybe not the uh, the, the sort of bogeyman version either. Mm. But uh, so I so I try to get to the truth, but I also try to not get not just to the truth, but towards interesting and what hasn't hasn't been said before because I, i'm sure you've noticed uh, that there's so many books on a certain subject uh, you read one and you think that was you know that was really interesting and then you read five or ten more and you think i just read the, the same book over and over again either by the same author or by different authors and it's because it becomes a formula that if you want to sell a book on that subject here's what you have to say and uh, so everybody ends up writing the same book, but I'm not really interested in doing that mm. because um, that's not really my aim. My aim is to find out something that, that people don't know in general and to say things that, are, that haven't been said before or at least aren't widely known or maybe not known at all. So I would say the approach is to try to get to the truth, um, try to understand things in a more complicated and complex and nuanced way than other people and um, to say things that haven't been said before and to give different perspectives that are that are legitimate and um, you know so that for example when when I was uh, when I, when I was writing about uh, Ayatollah Khomeini for example and this isn't an endorsement of, uh, of Khomeini at all but mm -hmm. But, you know, every book on Khomeini and every article about <clears throat> about Khomeini is just about, you know, him being a maniac. And he uh, he put out a fatwa to have uh, someone Rushdie killed. And, and everybody knows that. So I don't want to. So I don't want to write that book. It's pointless. It's already out there. So it's not that I deny that 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 happened or that there are you know maybe bad things about the islamic republic but i'm more interested in well what hasn't been said and, and what hasn't been said about Khomeini is that he was at least not widely anyway it was that uh, he was inc incredibly influenced by uh, islamic gnosticism uh, throughout his life you know and this was a controversial subject even in iran that you know you weren't really supposed to be reading these books on uh, islamic gnosticism but you know uh, you know that was always a, a big interest of his and uh, he even spoke about it after he became uh, after he became the supreme leader of, of iran so yeah. yeah so i'm interested in saying what what other people generally don't say no, that's absolutely true and 
that answer gives me uh, the perfect transition angel to okay, my <laughs> other questions and subject that I want to talk to you about today, uh, which is your wonderful website, Phalanx, um, because also there you are treating unusual and uncomfortable subjects, I would say, because and you just gave us the reason why, because you're interested in subjects that have not been spoken about, at least not in depth yet. And they are often the ones that are uncomfortable, aren't they? Yeah, that's right. And, you know, again, um, when it comes to articles, and I'm sure you've seen this as I have, and I think we all have many, many times, you know, there's a there's some, some event that gets into the news, and then a journalist will usually say something condemning it, oh, it's just the worst thing ever. And then there'll be 10 articles that are in other uh, newspapers and journals that are almost identical. Oh, it's really bad. And then after that, you get another 20 articles saying, ah, it's even worse than that because... And everybody's essentially writing writing the same article, but then trying to make it even more than it was before. But not adding any more information, just more more sort of wow factor. Yeah, and it's almost like a sort of addiction that uh, that we keep... we keep need to need to write the same thing over and over again, but just more with more and more drama, and um, and consequently, you know, what what's the point in reading half of these these journals or newspapers? I mean, you know exactly what it's going to say before you even looked at it. And uh, so I, I, you know, I try not to do that, and I try to write about things that are uncomfortable, and uh, and say things that are uncomfortable, but not. In regard to my website, Phalanx, not because I want to be a thorn in people's sides, actually, yeah. but because um, but because I think that there are uh, people today are doing many things wrongly because they're swept up in a sort of emotional fashion, and uh, you know it's all it's all very well to you know oh to go on Twitter and start screaming and things like that and and having people you know liking it and you've got a thousand likes or whatever. Yeah. on social media and that must be incredibly gratifying i'm sure but um you know i i don't think that that's a healthy way of living and i think that we're actually becoming more and more unhealthy in in our mentality actually yes. and more and more tribal and hysterical and moving further and further away from the truth so you know so what i try to do is to remind people that there are actually uh, uh, things in life that are, that are good and things that are bad and you should st- stick more or less to to what is uh, good and helpful and improve your own life because uh, you know moralizing to everybody else or ha- hating the, uh, the you know the political side that you're not on um, is is ultimately worthless and and when it comes to politics uh, the left and right etc actually create each other they couldn't exist without each other quite frankly exactly and uh, and um in uh, my feeling is most of the people who are involved in that are actually just doing uh, uh just create they will ever ever solve which will be none by the way so uh so i encourage people to um 
to improve themselves and in a way to live a three-dimensional life and that and that's difficult and if you can start doing that you might actually have something worth saying to other people and it's true you won't convert a million people that that is true so you won't get the sort of social media satisfaction but you're never going to do that anyway but uh, you probably will influence a few people's lives uh, positively and i think if you can do that then you've done more than 99.9 percent of the population quite honestly so that's that's my my yeah. yeah you also say it somewhere on your about page i think that phalanx doesn't care about politics i think you say there and that's exactly what you just explained why and what you mean by that kind of politics also the, the subtitle it's called guts determination spirituality that's to me a wonderful combination but again a very unusual one you want to comment on that sure yeah so i I, you know um as you know uh spirituality tends to be seen as um uh, people wearing yoga pants (laughs) and burning joysticks before statues of the buddha not necessarily having ever read anything that the buddha said but uh, and just generally feeling nice and feeling that we're giving you know projecting peace into the world and you know that's fine it's better than nothing but um i don't think that that's really what spirituality is in a way i I think that spirituality in a sense comes from sort of pushing oneself out of the comfort zone Mm -hmm. and and at the same time you know not in a reckless way but uh, pushing oneself out out of one's comfort zone in a way that it's is going to um, uh, develop oneself in a certain sense. So, um, you know, there might be uh, developing one's physical body because um, although people that are are, are muscular tend to be uh, denounced as meatheads and morons, actually, you know, anyone that's done any kind of strength training at all will know it takes takes incredible determination. Uh, There is, obviously, there is an element of visualization uh, to get, to that sort of level, uh, people, you know, are visualizing uh, what they're doing as they're doing it. And there's also incredible uh, mental and emotional um, determination to overcome pain. And uh, most people simply can't do it. And uh, so something like that, I would say that, you know, that is one way of discovering um, of, uh, discovering the spirit and as such uh, spirituality. Uh, I think you can learn as much about spirituality and experience spirituality as much doing that as you can. Maybe more than uh, sitting around meditating, actually. Although meditation is important. But yeah, so I would say that, um, you know, I, I would en- encourage people and I encourage myself. And, uh, you know, I have my own fears and weaknesses as well. But, you know, I hope that uh, I'm, you know, confronting things that I don't like about myself, but also uh, confronting things that I don't really like, such as, you know, in martial arts, I don't, I don't especially like being, you know, kicked in the gut or, you know, hurt or injured or anything like that. I mean, I, I, some people seem to love it, but personally, I, I do not. And, um, but, you know, I still, um, you know, I still go, we don't wear padding uh, at my uh, school. And, um, you know, I try to uh, push myself as uh, much as I, I can. And it's uh, not easy, but, uh, you know, I do it. But, um, you know, uh, mm-hmm. you know, that's courage is something 
you have to develop as well in different ways. And I think a lot of the, the hysteria today is a, is a way of avoiding this, actually. I have to hook my next question to that, because we were talking about traditionalism with a big T uh, yeah. earlier. Um, now we are talking about subjects, or you just said that, and I very much personally relate to what you're saying and what you're writing and others are writing on your website about, for example, the decline of the West. And I would like to underline that I mean it in the way you just said it, not in a negative way, not in a pulling us morally down way, you know, but one has to talk about those subjects, otherwise you can't yeah. solve them. If you don't see the dark side of things, you can't blend the, uh, the light side into it. And so the decline of the West is a subject. Is traditionalism today, now maybe with the small t, is that something that's linked to those thoughts or how would you relate to that? So, to the thoughts of the decline of the West? Yeah, or why is the decline of the West, for example, a subject that you treat often there? Is yeah. traditionalism something that's important for you? Um, yeah, I mean, I so I, I would say that I do share some uh, some things in common with traditionalism or mm -hmm. uh, tradition, traditionalist thought with a capital T, mm -hmm. but I also uh, disagree with traditionalism on some things. So what I agree with uh, the traditionalist that a couple of things. One, uh, I think that we're not we're not going to progress towards utopia. And that things aren't necessarily going to get better and better. Yeah. I think actually we're we are in a, in, a, in a, essentially in decline, but most people just don't realize it yet. Um, but they will in about twenty or thirty years' time because it will become evident. Yeah. And it's a, it's partly a spiritual crisis. It's partly a religious crisis. It's partly a crisis of not having any real meaning in the world, which which manifests in different ways, right? If you don't really have meaning. If you don't really know why you're here, then you're going to, going to become involved with sort of fanatical movements, whether that's, a, a, let's say, a sort of left or right movement in the West or, or jihadism or something like that. Um, but, uh, yeah, so I do believe that we are in, in, in the sort of uh, material age or the dark age. Uh, another thing I would share in common with traditionalism is that they believe uh, that there is such a thing as um, counter-initiation and pseudo-initiation. And, mm -hmm. and I also think that that is the case, that, that you know people can join an occult group or an esoteric order. And um, it's true, you know, that you might be given some quote-unquote esoteric secrets, but the orientation of the of the of the group um, might well be um, uh, sort of uh, taking uh, modern modern values and the modern view of things and in a way exacerbating all of the problems and um, I think very many of, of the uh, esoteric uh, groups that are around today are essentially a kind of uh, really they're more sort of political groups that convert uh, polit politics into spiritual into a kind of spiritual ritual mm. um, so instead of, instead of waving placards they will they will be doing a ritual which is essentially a sort of 
polit in a way a political mess and i don't think that that is what um spirituality is about and it has never been about that and i think that that in itself is an indication of a kind of spiritual decline and um and, and you know you see this even in in churches right where where they where they claim that Jesus's message or, uh, essentially reflects whatever is currently uh, in vogue in politics of the day. And so, and so they, they sort of turn uh, Jesus, and I'm, I'm not a Christian at all, but they turn Jesus, and you know, I'm sure it's the same with Muhammad as well, but we'll turn uh, uh, will turn them into essentially uh, political pundits or politicians, essentially. Mm -hmm. yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, so, so I do share the view that we're in a kind of decline and that this decline could get pretty bad. And I also share the view that there is a uh, there is such a thing as counter-initiation. But the things I disagree with, uh, traditionalism on, the, it tends to be very backward-looking yes. in that it tends to... To, to think that the past is always the best and the further back you go the better it was so i don't really i don't really believe that yeah. and um you know the problem with that really is that you can't really have any innovation and you're always a bit bitter about um any sort of culture in in that might be around today and i i had one traditionalist admittedly it was on youtube but uh, you know a well-known traditionalist uh, talking about art and he was saying well originally there was sacred art which is you know let's say um uh the, maybe it's a, an image of the of, of a lingam um which is abstract so it's a kind of abstract art which embodies um uh, spiritual forces in a concrete form and then after that you have uh, religious art so it's a, essentially kind of an illustration of um, of the spiritual and, it's, and that's as such is one removed from that which is you know which is true and then after that you get um you know portraiture and then um, and then modern art and this kind of thing which would which in their view would be increasingly decadent but um i think that art and creativity is actually important and and embodying uh, beauty uh, is important, and that actually can point the way out of uh, out of our condition. And you know, I happened uh, about a year ago to be driving uh, through the Bronx, and much of the Bronx, contrary to popular opinion, actually is you know fields and countryside. But you know, there are um, some um, uh, projects or uh, what you might call um, uh, government. Uh, government-funded housing, which are these monstrous tower blocks. And I think that you could put the saints in there, quite honestly, and I think you would end up with major social problems because uh, these buildings are so ugly. I mean, no one could uh, could uh, could have their sanity living in places like that. And, um, and I don't think it's entirely a coincidence that, okay, I mean, many of the of the people that were moved into those buildings were poor to begin with, but uh, I mean that that is only going to increase social unrest. I mean, Gurdjieff said that uh, you know essentially the the things we see are a kind of food, right? Yeah. And food is about nutrition, and we know that there's junk food, and we know there's food with nutrition, and that's the equivalent of a junk food diet, quite honestly. And um, what we need is um, is a, a visual creativity that 
that is the equivalent of uh, high nutrition, and uh, and that and that is to create things of beauty or profound meaning, and and things that actually make people feel uplifted. And so, you know, traditionalism, I think, would say that no, that's not really possible. Or that's already uh, that's already. Um, uh, a manifestation of the Kali Yuga to even think like that, but I think that you know the the human spirit and the, the individual creative creativity means that we actually can do things that are constructive, and we actually don't need to be uh, slaves to this uh, uh, to the worst elements of the world we live in. You know, although you could say, in a certain sense, that you know traditionalism has influenced phalanx, it's also, in a sense. It, you could also say it's sort of anti-traditionalist, at least in the most negative uh, aspects, because you know I'm, I sort of feel that I'm uh, creating something that's offering people a way out of uh, the the misery that we can feel in the modern age, yeah. and a way of uplifting themselves. So, you know, and it's not and it's yeah. not easy. It's a struggle, and it's a struggle for me too. But uh, you know, so I think um, yeah, does that answer the question? Yeah, absolutely. And I would again like to underline, I wasn't meaning at all that uh, Phalanx is traditionalist at all. It has some <laughs> aspects, but yeah. it's very forward looking to me. And it just answers questions that I for myself ask myself a lot. And yeah. I think many people do. I, I think we see it also on the reactions that you get on Phalanx. Yeah. And I find it extraordinary that website. I'm not saying that because I oh, have you on the other end of that line, but I, th I find it really very special. And uh, I hope uh, some people who might not have known that website yet might go and have a look. I'll give, of course, all the links also <laughs> to the all to the Question and Compass book in uh, the show notes of the of, of the show, so to make sure people can get there. You said one word in your last answer i have to take you up on that uh, you said very briefly the word manhood and let me read uh let me read a short a, sh a few phrases from phalanx from your side which come from february 2016 when did you create phalanx when did you start um, it thank you I think that was when it was created. Okay. Actually. Because it says here, there is a spiritual crisis in the modern world, yet nowhere does this appear more so than among men. Leaving aside statistics that put men at 90% or above for suicides, imprisonment and combat deaths, it is clear that less and less often do men have any examples of healthy masculinity by which to measure and to improve themselves. I find that as a man very, very interesting as a subject. Again, a difficult subject nowadays to talk about. and. A bit, I have an impression that the question of manhood, even the word is good and not often used <laughs> like that. It's become a bit less important on phalanx lately. Is this a wrong impression or do you have a reason for that? Yeah, so uh, let me take that last part first. So yeah, it's, it's probably become a little less important in that um, early on, I was actually writing it with a, with a couple of other guys, and I think that because we were all men with the same sort of outlook, um, that was maybe slightly emphasized. But I think even then, actually, it was more of a sort of 
um, maybe a slightly aggressive confrontation with uh, the worst aspects of the modern world. So it maybe had more of a masculine feel than than uh, than actually being uh, totally about manhood or masculinity. Mm-hmm. Though, that, though that is something I'm interested in still, and we'll write about occasionally. Yeah, and I, you know, I should say that. You know, I do envision that most of the readers probably are men, um, just because of the subjects that I that I cover. Even though spirituality is one of them, I you know I look at it from a, a certain perspective, which is unusual. But nevertheless, um, you know, I, I do think uh, that some women are reading it, and actually, some of the the best comments about this I, I, I know come a from few women who do read it. I can tell you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it's kind of curious. But um, in, in regard to uh, manhood, well, let, let's uh, slate, uh, step back to the idea of the decline of the modern West and, and go from there. So th- uh, that, that term is mostly associated with, um, with uh, uh, the thinker Oswald uh, Spengler, or Oswald Spengler, mm-hmm. uh, whom you probably know. Um, he was an early uh, 20th century. And, um, so he, and he tends to be associated today with... Um, more uh, right-wing movements, uh, you know, because he was regarded as a philosopher of pessimism or it's all getting worse. And uh, he was essentially a conservative thinker. Um, but he has actually influenced um, uh, some some interesting uh, thinkers, uh, not least of all, and perhaps quite surprisingly, uh, Camille Paglia, who's a, an out- outspoken, um, let's say, uh, old-fashioned feminist, uh, who's certainly uh, well worth, uh, worth listening to and worth reading. And her style of writing alone is, is really excellent. But um, yeah, he, uh, so Sprengler uh, influenced her, and he also influenced um, another German thinker called, called um, uh, Jean Gebser. And um, Jean Gebser um, has, a, has a sort of response to Sprengler and says that, no, you know, Sprengler says the cultures are like uh, like plants. They're essentially organic and they have roots. Uh, they flower, which is essentially they blossom uh, by expressing their um, primordial idea or symbol and then they wither and die and mm. we're now in the in the dying phase. And um, so Gebser says that uh, actually uh, it may not be that as such that uh, the cultures just die like that, but that but that we're going through different um, stages of consciousness and we're reaching ever more uh, spiritual heights of consciousness. And um, so that's, that, that, in essence, is his response to Spengler. Um, so it's a sort of more positive uh, take on it. The, there are definitely uh, endings and plateaus in it. Mm-hmm. But, um, yeah, in regard, to, uh, in regard to manhood, and, you know, I don't think we should sugarcoat the past because there have been all kinds of uh, horrible things for throughout oh, the, the centuries. <laughs> but, um, but, I, but I think that in, it's true to say probably in every classical civilization and every uh, tribal culture that, that survived any amount of time at all, um, you know, there was a, 
a tradition of initiating uh, boys into manhood and women and uh, girls into women, womanhood as well. And, uh, and you know, that involved uh, telling them the, uh, you know, the religious uh, secrets of, uh, of the tribe or the culture, which, which in, you know, in turn gave them a sense of uh, belonging and meaning and, and purpose and why things work the way they do. And, you know, again, would, would teach them some kind of uh, skills as well, such as hunting or, or being able to, uh, you know, fight with weapons and so on. Even up until, you know, 100 years ago, uh, the extended family were, you know, you had grandchildren and, uh, you know, parents and, and grandparents living together under one roof was you know not unusual but today we've become incredibly atomized and um now it's you know uh, one child uh to to you know the two parents who live away from the grandparents you know in, in the best case scenario mostly you know we have become a culture that tries to uh, you know entertain youths rather than um than educating them into uh, into meaning and um you know, uh, you, you can kind of see, really, can't you, that the, the young men in particular have real problems in knowing, well, why are they here? What, what should they be doing? Yeah. And, uh, you know, what is what is noble behavior for them? Uh, what, you know, what is manhood? And I think that many men and, and many women, when they hear that word, you know, sort of... Uh, uh, maybe slightly unnerved, if not repulsed yeah. by it, because they think, oh, men are responsible for all evils. But, um, uh, you know, why is it that, that uh, young men are, are taking, you know, drugs and acting badly? It's not because of the influence of men, actually. And I'm not saying it's the influence of women, but, but you know, if you look at the prison statistics, virtually, uh, virtually uh, well, certainly the overwhelming majority of, of male prison inmates did, did not have a father growing up or had an abusive father or at the best, you know, an emotionally estranged father. Yeah. And I think more and more we, we all grow up with a father that's one of those, you know, either completely absent or is just emotionally absent or you know, perhaps abusive and uh, there's very little we can you know sadly we can, that most men or young men will be able to learn from their fathers yeah and uh, and then they you know they they may try and rectify this by becoming involved with gangs or something and even uh, the, you know we treat everything incredibly superficially today and even when you look at um uh, you know the, the jihadist terrorists you get in in uh, Europe uh, quite a lot, uh, at least over the over the last few months. You know, I think that they're they're sort of suffering what what Western people are suffering in a certain sense, and it, it's um, it's a sense of not belonging, of, of sort of being stranded in the world in a, in a world of meaninglessness. You you have the routines, you go to work and you come home, but you you don't quite know what it's all for, mm-hmm. and. Um, you know that was answered in uh, in in a tribal culture, and I think it's not that I want people to get the answers because you know to have the answers handed to them because I don't, but uh, I do want people to have some kind of uh, um, let's say emotional environment where they can at least ask the questions of themselves or of other people. And, um, you know, for me personally, I have to say it's, um, it's being, uh, you know, putting myself in the situation of uh, being involved with Freemasonry, but also being involved with martial arts. 
And um, maybe this is a good point to say that, I, you know, on more than one occasion, uh, I've compared Freemasonry to, to Confucianism. And that's actually the way that I look at Freemasonry. I don't, I don't look at it as a kind of, um, as a cult order, as, as some people do. Uh, for me, it's basically a Western uh, form of Confucianism where, um, you know, the, the, so Confucianism and Freemasonry both emphasize ritual, self-development, and um, and the and the community and the community of uh, Confucians, of course, or Freemasons, and that's how you develop yourself. But um, yeah, so that's been one one way, and Indian martial arts is another. But um, you know, most people today they say, "Oh, I'm not a joiner." Well, I don't, you know, I don't think someone should be a joiner. You know, I think someone should be a contributor. Hmm. And I think Important if you difference, yes, yeah, exactly. Yeah, no one should be a joiner. I mean, what could be more, you know, dreary than that? I mean, what what are you saying when you say I'm not a joiner? You're saying I'm not the, the sort of person that would go and just sit there. But then you're also saying that that's too much for you, right? Yeah. So I think you should, yeah, you shouldn't be a joiner. And you shouldn't be a loner because both of those things are completely useless. You should go and be a contributor. And, uh, you know, um, you, what you want to do or need to do really is to be in a group where, you know, you're told you, you can develop yourself, um, you know, in all aspects of yourself in a way that I would, I would say should be reflective of the way that men, if it's a male group or women, if it's a female group, have done for thousands of years in every single culture. And I know today that we're now we're told that gender is a social construct or all this sort of thing. And by the way, gender comes ultimately from the proto-Indo-European term genes, and is related to our modern terms, uh, genes and uh, genetics. So and, you know, and all three of them essentially refer to characteristics that are innate at birth. But um, you know, we're told that it, you know, gender is just a social construct, and you can be anything you want to be. And you know, fine. You know, and I have to say, whatever somebody wants to be, I'm completely fine with it. I, I haven't walked in their shoes, and I wouldn't want to judge someone. Yeah. But for the vast majority, and transgender is a, a, a <clears throat> is a real thing, and. I, uh, even coming so coming back to the the book on Islam, you know, Khomeini mm -hmm. uh, uh, actually, and I think it was in nineteen in the early nineteen sixties, uh, Ayatollah Khomeini said it was actually permissible under <laughs> under Sharia to get a, a, a gender reassignment or what oh, was really? called a sex change operation. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, although it should be said, it wasn't because mm -hmm. he, he thought that gay rights were important. It was because he actually said, thought it was an illness, and he said, well, under the Sharia, if you're sick, then you can get the medicine. And he said, these people are sick so they can get okay. the, they can get the treatment but yeah wasn't that some for some kind of like pro-gay rights yeah. ideas or anything okay. like that that would be, would <laughs> he be definitely would not <laughs> yes <laughs> yeah he, he would not be in, a, be in a favor of that at all but yeah so today we're told well gender is just a, a social construct and yeah sure of course you know uh, the way we dress today is different to the way we dressed yesterday and a uh, hundred years ago and uh, you know, men wore, wore makeup and wigs at one point. Sure, all of, all of that is true, but if you look back at every single civilization and tribal culture, pretty much 
almost without exception. Uh, you know, uh, th there does seem to be certain things that men do. And, you know, one of them is uh, definitely developing their physical side and knowing some kind of uh, uh, war ab ability. Well, and today that can just, I'm not advocating war, but, you know, we should, I think it's a part of men that we should know some kind of uh, self-defense at least and de develop our physical sides. But, um, you know, there is a there is a model, and it's not a Western model per se. Although it certainly has existed in the West about what what uh, uh, how we can develop ourselves, and I and I would say that you know I wouldn't want to force that on anyone, but it's an it's an option for those people who are looking at it. No matter uh, no matter what sort of tut tutting one might get on uh, on Twitter for for saying that that uh, you know if you look at the Islamic civilization or ancient Greece civilization, and you try and figure out what what men were doing um they were doing fairly similar things uh, even though there may be some very different uh, cultural um qualities and values nevertheless well angel this is all extremely interesting and i i'm sorry that we have to stop now because we could go on for like, uh, not to the far future to carry on on that conversation which i find personally fascinating i'm sure our listeners think the same um before i will ask you a final question a final word so to speak would you like to tell us if do you have any plans in the close future maybe about the new book or about something that you would like to tell us we should know um well I'm, i'm always working on new books so i have a couple of things in the pipeline uh, other than that i am giving a lot of uh, talks mostly to masonic uh, lodges and organizations but some of them are public as well uh, in the in the us so if they want to friend me on facebook if they're interested in finding out more about that i usually give announcements yeah. and, uh, and otherwise yeah i would encourage people to who are not entirely faint-hearted to read uh, to read phalanx uh, which is phalx.com and um and you know if, if people feel that it's a good thing for them if they want to contribute in some way that that's also uh, very welcome indeed or to just get in contact with me i also welcome that no go there listeners it's absolutely worth it and i would like to end this interview with a quote from phalanx actually you have something <laughs> there which is called code of honor and, oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, i'm not going to read the whole of it but just two short phrases and would like you to say something about that because okay. they are also of the more unusual things than those that you find normally in that kind of, of codes of honor, if you want. And they say, assume nothing, remember impermanence. Why yes. are those two <laughs> phrases so important? Yes, well, I should I should probably tell you that the the code of honor is actually influenced by uh, the tenets of certain martial arts systems. Uh, one that I've practiced, um, uh, which is Shaolin Kung Fu, and um, and the assume nothing was actually one of those tenets. But um, yeah, so assume nothing. Yeah, so I would say that you always have to try and go deeper, and things are surprising, and and people are surprising as well, and. Um, You know, not to uh, not to stay at surface level, which is which as well is uh, you know not to believe what other people say. Yeah. But uh, yeah, to to really explore things, and I would say that 
if you explore something and it it uh, tells you exactly what you thought already, then you really haven't explored it. Uh, it should make you think. And if it's not making you think, and if it's not making you be able to say, well, here's what the other side says, and here's their explanation, I don't agree with that, but but here's you know, their best argument. If you can't do that, then you're not really reading. You're just uh, trying to satisfy yourself and show how clever you are. Yeah. So I say, you know, go go deeper because you know it's not about um, it's not about me sort of wagging my finger at people. It's about people um, living their lives. We've only got this one life, and and there's just no point in uh, in sticking to uh, to the things that we think we know when we really don't and you know and i have to say with with, with uh, especially with my last book but probably not the only not the only book i've written but you know uh, you know, most people when they write a book, they they uh, they write a chapter and a and a synopsis or a chapter or two, and then approach a publisher. But I I, I don't really like doing that because, quite frankly, um, I know that by the time I've got to the end of the book, it's going to be so different to what I thought it was going to be. Because my, you know, if I'm researching for a year or two years or three years. I want my mind to be changed because what's the point, you know? But I'm sorry, what was the other tenet? I forget. That it was remember impermanence. Yeah, remember impermanence. Yeah, so I, I would say again that remember, you know, another way of putting that is remember death, right? So in in certain uh, Masonic lodges and, and maybe in Austria and, and Europe especially, sure. um, you have the, the the chamber of reflection. So before someone is initiated into Freemasonry, hmm. uh, they would sit in a quote unquote chamber of reflection. Yeah, which is usually uh, has dark walls and a table and a skull and crossbones on a table and in some jurisdictions you would be asked to write out your will and it's not uh, to you know scare you or to give you the heebie-jeebies. Uh, many of the, the, the many of the chambers of reflections have different sayings written on the wall and one of them is uh, if you want to live a good life, remember death. Mm-hmm. And um, exactly, yeah. Yeah, memento mori, and um, yeah, and in uh, in Tolstoy's War and Peace, he gives the uh, the the, the uh, beliefs of the Freemasons. One is love of death. I love that, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and you know, again, you can imagine what, how how that would be twisted in the media today. Oh, love of death, we're oh, afraid yeah. monsters, <laughs> and um, but no, love of, love of death means that you realize that death is in front of you. So you know, you have this life. Um, and you have to make the best of it, which means, you know, trying to uh, develop yourself and be truthful with yourself and try to understand things to the absolute best ability uh, that you can. And um, and realizing that you, you won't be here forever, your relationships won't last forever, your friends might not be around forever. Um, so we live in a state of impermanence in a way. And if we live in a state of impermanence, probably the best thing we can do is, you know, to be guided by, you know, the classical civilizations of the past, east and west, um, to figure out what is what is going to be useful for us in life and what will be meaningful for us. So that, you know, in this quite meaningless age for many people, uh, that we do have a sense of meaning and we, we can create something of value for other people and for ourselves and to leave something behind which is also of value for future generations definitely perfect final words angel thank you (laughs) 
Thank you, Angel Millar, for being with us here on Thos Hermes tonight. It was a great, great pleasure to have you here. And, uh, well, as I said earlier, I hope to have you back at some point soon and to talk further about all those very important things in life. Thank you. Great. Thank you very much. It's been great fun. Thank you very much, Angel. This was a very inspiring and interesting talk. Once again, if you want to go on Angel's personal website on or his site Phalanx, which we were talking about, or also if you need more information about his books and how to order the Crescent and the Compass, please go to the Thoth Hermes website www thothhermes.com, where on the page of this episode you will find the show notes and the necessary links. One last piece of music, this time by another friend of Angel's and a colleague podcaster. The piece is called Hymn to the Anunnaki and is performed by the Infinite Regress. The man behind this music is Andy Mercer, also a UK-based esotericist, and he has now a show on the Paranormal UK Radio, which is an internet station, at 9pm UK time and also 9pm Eastern Standard every second Tuesday, discussing the esoteric, witchcraft, magic, the occult and related strangeness, as he puts it, but now we listen to his hymn to the Anunnaki.
Hymn to the Anunnaki by Andy Mercer's The Infinite Progress. And with that piece, dear friends and listeners, we have come to the end of today's episode number one of this new season. I am very glad season two has finally been kicked off and I thank you very much for listening. Those of you who might not have heard my intro, the news and reviews will of course be back next time. And talking about next time, our featured guest on episode number two of season two will be German occultist and author Frater Acker, whose website theomagica.com and his new book of Cyprian the Mage will be at the center of our discussions. But I am particularly proud of this interview because Frater Acker has for the first time ever agreed to be on a podcast, so this will be a premiere and an exclusivity. Don't miss it. Thanks for having joined Angel Millar and me today. It has been a pleasure to produce that show for you. Now that the dark evenings are getting longer, I wish you a pleasant time in preparation of the holidays and not too much stress. But before the holidays, Thoth Hermes is of course going to be back at least twice. Promised. As usual, the soft calling of Wendy Rule's night sea journey is telling me that it is time to say goodbye for today. I'm looking forward to have you with us next time. And for now I can only say, take care, stay tuned, hear you soon. <laughs>